The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. We are very excited about today's podcast interview. Many of you are probably familiar with John Ringo's Black Tide Rising zombie science fiction series. What started out as four books by John has grown into one of the most popular zombie series of all times, encompassing eight novels and dozens of short stories. This month, we add a new dimension to the Black Tide Rising series and to Bain Publishing Enterprises with Black Tide Rising, the graphic novel. This adaptation of Ringo's first novel marks Bain's entry into the graphic novel field, and we couldn't be more excited about it. Today, Sean C.W. Korsgaard brings us a discussion with the creative team behind the book, including Mike Lerman, Mike Barron, and Richard Rosenthal. But first, the news. Head on over to Bane.com for this month's free fiction and nonfiction. First up, we have The Witch, The Woods, and The Elf Queen by Gregory Frost, a new short story set in the world of his upcoming novel, Rhymer. Janet's parents always thought their daughter would grow up to become someone extraordinary, perhaps one of the night battlers, a secret cabal that protected humankind from the dark forces of witches and sorcery. But when Janet takes up with a witch, her father tells her it is time to put away these foolish fancies. But it may already be too late. And while you're there, check out this month's nonfiction article, Artificial Intelligence, Myth, Fiction, and Future by Jim Beale. The term artificial intelligence may have been coined by mathematician and computer scientist John McCarthy, and science fiction writers may have been exploring the concept since the earliest beginnings of the genre. But the concept of AI goes back nearly three millennia. In this month's nonfiction essay, Jim Beale traces the history of artificial intelligence from its roots in the ancient world and on into the future. That's The Witch, The Woods, and The Elf Queen by Gregory Frost, and Artificial Intelligence, Myth, Fiction, and Future by Jim Beale, both free to read now at Bain.com. And that's it for the news. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Bain Free Radio Hour. I am your host this week, Bain Media and Military Liaison, Sean C.W. Forsgar. And joining us this week, we have three of the minds behind the gruesomely grim and delightful Black Tide Rising graphic novel series. Mike Lerman, Richard, and coming up for volume two, Michael Barron. So I know it's been a while for Mike and Richard and for Mike Barron, this is your first appearance on the Bain Free Radio Hour. So let's begin with introducing you to our wonderful listeners. Gentlemen, take it away. Well, I'll start. I've been writing comic books for 40 years. I wrote Punisher for Marvel, Dead Man, some Batman for DC, Star Wars for uh, Dark Horse. Uh, and the Star Wars I wrote for Dark Horse were adapting Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire. Uh, I've adapted quite a few novels into graphic novels. Uh, I enjoy doing it. 
uh, because I've been lucky that every novel I've been asked to adapt has been fascinating reading. Uh, and I pride myself on not using any of my own language. I try to use everything that's straight from the novel. I also created my own characters, Nexus and Badger, and they've been published off and on for over 40 years. Uh, and they're still being published today. I write novels. I'm all over the place. I've got a crime series called Biker. I've written a number of science fiction novels, a number of horror novels, and some uh, humor novels called Florida Man. There are three Florida Man novels. Uh, and I'm writing now. I'm writing right now, this very moment, while we're talking. <laughs> well, my experience has been, um, I had been doing some independent filmmaking when I was living in Atlanta. And I did that for about six or seven years. Um, some of the folks I worked with are in industry. Some of the folks are not in the industry. But we used to do these, what were called uh, 48-hour film festivals. And the idea was that it gave the non-industry people a chance to sharpen and practice their skills. Um, I kind of got bored working with them because all they ever wanted to do was zombie stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And I thought, well, this will be a good way to sort of clear the decks. It's science fiction. How bad could it be? And uh, uh, Mike Lerman had introduced me to uh, Tony Weisskopf. And she said, I'm going to send you these four books. And she said, see if they'd be worthwhile and something you can do. And of course, I didn't know who John Ringo was. The four books arrived. I start reading and I get about two chapters into the, the book uh, under a graveyard sky. I put it down. I call Mike on the phone and I go, Mike, I told you I hate zombie stories. He said, it's okay. Just keep reading. So I did. And I fell in love with the series uh, and the rest is what we're doing today. And we'll talk about that some more in a little bit. Yeah, I got started uh, in you know pop culture and entertainment probably just about 10 years ago now. Um, I accidentally helped a family friend out with a, uh, with a TV project that involved Nick Searcy from uh, Justified and lots of other great movies that our audience probably knows very well. Um, it was a it was a really interesting experience. It was something I never really planned on doing, but it was cool. It was fun, and I thought, hey, you know, I'd like to like to try to do something like this. And a few years later, meet Richard. We uh, you know we start working on some other things, and I go to my first Liberty Con in 2014. I meet some of the authors. I sort of get introduced to the to the Bane world, and not very long after that, we're uh, Richard and I start having some conversations with Tony and. We will, you know, we're we're looking for. Uh, at least initially, we were looking for maybe some, you know, some film type projects, and you know, Black Tide Rising came up in the mix there, and and we actually, you know, we some some of the longtime Bane fans probably do remember when we we tried to crowdfund where we were going to do a TV pilot and a sizzle reel and some stuff like that. Uh, just really wasn't the right time. Uh, that unfortunately didn't work the way we wanted it to, but it was a very good learning experience. We we learned a lot of lessons in that whole process. And uh, graphic novels and the world of comics is where we applied a lot of those lessons learned. And, you know, we, we still want to do some of those same things in, in other entertainment mediums, but graphic novels and comics just became a natural kind of extension of what's already out there now. And another way just to bring a little bit of visual life to the screen. 
Now, Mike Barron, we'll get to what drew you to Black Tide Rising in a minute, but for Mike Lerman and Richard, Black Tide Rising as a setting has really, really gone off in some wild directions. We have the original four-book series from John Ringo, two duologies from Mike Massa and Charles Gannon, and soon-to-be four anthologies, and we might be announcing the next standalone novel in the series in the next couple of weeks. And, of course, now we have your graphic novel. What was it that originally attracted you to Black Tide Rising as a setting? And I know the TV pilot might have been the original plan, but what was it that made you want to make a graphic novel of this series? Well, one of the things that when, when Mike and I had tried to do the fundraising for the crowdfunding raising for the Sizzler Reel and that didn't work out, he, he had called me one day and he said, you know, what would you think about doing this as a graphic novel? And for me, the light bulb went on because the graphic novel would be the storyboards that we really need to be able to show producers or directors who might be interested in this as a project for uh, episodic TV or for film. And so I, I naturally gravitated to that and went, well, that would certainly be better than just paying to have a script written and you know march up and down the street and want to find people who would be interested in it that way. Um, when you're dealing with that environment, there are people called script readers, and they have stacks of scripts just sitting on their desk. And I looked at it like, well, we'll just be another script sitting in one of those stacks. And it's, how do you get their attention quicker? And since people in the TV or the film business are visual people, the graphic novel made the most amount of sense. And so that's the path we've taken. And that's really what we're looking to do uh, with the Black Tide Rising series. Well, for my part, um, you know, I, I was a little skeptical at first, uh, maybe not so much as Richard with the zombie genre. Of course, you know, The Walking Dead was the was the was one of the biggest phenomenons in, on the, in the world at that time. And uh, and you know, Richard had his indie film experience. He was a little burnt out on that stuff. But you know, one, once we started reading and once we once we just got a few pages into this and we realized that it was just really something different, it was a totally different take, you know, you know, much, much different than anything that either one of us had ever seen related to the zombie genre. And just, you know, just John Ringo's unique quality as a, as a storyteller uh, that really kind of sucked us in and, and sold us. And and quite honestly, it's it's sold just about everybody else that we've ever talked to that's not familiar with it that uh you know that's kind of shared that same degree of skepticism um <clears throat> you know when when we applied those lessons learned from the first uh crowdfund we, when we thought we were going to try to go straight down the screen route <clears throat> uh wound up having a conversation with brett smith uh, the colorist and the project manager for volume one and you know we we learned a lot more about about that world and you know we you know, we sort of you know over the next several months over the next year or so we were kind of introduced to and you know start having conversations with different with different comic creatives artists writers colorists folks like that um you know that's that's where we first you know we first started talking to chuck dixon we first met mike the same way um you know those you know as you know as we you know as we started reading some more comics and 
and sort of diving into that world, I was I was kind of familiar with comics. I I'd kind of picked them up off and on over the years. I've I, I've always liked them, and after getting to talk to these guys and getting to know them a little bit, and just you know seeing the quality of the writing that they do and of their of their storytelling, it was just kind of a natural fit, and it was a way to it was a way to really get these stories out there in other ways that didn't involve, like Richard said, giant Hollywood budgets and, you know, paying, you know, five, six figures to produce a script or produce something that really isn't usable. And, you know, it's, it's, it's also just been a lot of fun. Now, Mike Barron, kind of the opposite side of that equation, you're new to the series as of volume two. What was it that attracted you to working with the Black Tide Rising series. Well, check. Oh. Uh, Mike, one sec. Oh. You are muted, Mike. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. I got these dogs, and they think it's time <laughs> for dinner. Uh, but I'd seen what Chuck did with the Black Tide Rising book. Uh, I was uh, predisposed to like anything that Bain publishes uh, because I have a lot of friends who publish through Bain. They're Facebook friends. I've met a couple of them. Uh, and I've drawn to military science fiction novels myself. Uh, when uh, Mike and Rich asked me to to uh, write the second volume, I was happy to do it. I said, yes, sight unseen. And then they sent me the books and I read the books. And I was struck how prescient they are because uh, John wrote those books beginning in, I think, 2014. Is that right? Yeah, 2013, 2014. I, yeah, I think well, 2013 was the first publication of Under Graveyard Sky. But yeah, that, that definitely that time frame. Well, isn't it eerie how he presaged the, the virus, the pandemic, how he saw that coming, how he anticipated uh, COVID and what it would do to our lives. I mean, it's just uncanny. Uh, now, of course, the idea of zombies has been around a long time. Zombies are hugely popular. People love zombies. Uh, but uh, I read the books uh, and I, 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 was, I thought it was a vital story, vitally told. Uh, he's got a gift for dialogue. He's got a gift for characterization. There are so many of those characters that stood out vividly. Uh, which is what I need when I'm adapting a novel into a graphic novel. You need visual storytelling. It's called show, don't tell. Uh, and it applies to straight prose as well as to comics and, and movies. Uh, and Ringo's a master of that. Uh, if anything, the books were so complex, it was hard to keep track of all the characters, but with some help from these guys, I did it. Uh, and I can't wait to, uh, to dive into the, the ad continuing adventures. Now, I know the announcement that Volume 2 was happening was fairly recent. Volume 1 ends with the fall of New York City and the last concert on Earth. Where are we going with Volume 2? Uh, you know, Volume 2 combines elements with Volume 1 because Volume 1 uh, really only deals uh, with the, the Smiths after they go to sea. And they don't follow the action that takes place back on Manhattan, uh, which is vital to the story because so much of it uh, deals with the future of the human race. So uh, volume two is going to incorporate uh, all those parts of volume one that weren't in the graphic novel with what's in the second novel. 
Right. And, and what Mike's talking about there for, for the, for the longtime readers, uh, since, since we have the first six books in the series that have been out for a while now, and, and we didn't, you know, there, the, the luxury really didn't exist at the time. What we've been able to do is now that we've got the main Smith family story, Steve, Faith, Sophia, and Stacy, and we also have Tom's story, what we've done with that is effectively sort of combine combine the sort of the whole Smith family saga to make it into a uh, you know, almost kind of a you could almost look at it as like a director's cut, where instead of you know getting the first four books that covered the main Smith family uh, and Wolf Squadron, you know we've we've also got the you know the the, the side you know Tom's side of the story with uh, you know with sort of dealing with what what the end of the world looks like on land. And sort of having to to sort of make that slog and go through the ruins of the United States, and we were able to sort of combine those almost in an episodic TV style, where we're going to be jumping sort of from one, you know, from one story to the other, and you know, so so the reader's not really staying in one place too long, and you're really getting the depth and the breadth of that entire story. Yeah, you know, the idea in volume two when we approached uh, Mike Barron was to get. Uh, the last two books that were written, especially book five, and get it in sync, if you would, with Under a Graveyard Sky. So we could, although the stories and the families depart each other, we could do as, as Mike Lerman just said, and we could go back and forth. And we think that's an, a more interesting way to tell the story instead of doing uh, volumes one through four and then doing volumes five and six. So the plan, it sounds like, will be to weave in some of the stories that have been added since the original four book series concluded, like Mike Mass's duology, some of maybe even some of the short stories or Chuck Gannon's series were appropriate. And we get to see a more cohesive whole, Black Tide Rising in the comic book series. Very much so. That's yeah, that, that that's exactly what we want to do. Uh, volume two is a whole lot of the kind of second half of the Valley of Shadows. Uh, you know, you, you got just a little bit of a taste in Under Graveyard Sky in the first half of Valley of Shadows. You know, what, what's going on in New York, how the how the society overall is responding to this, you know, increasingly worse zombie pandemic. Uh, you, you've got these different factions. You've got the government. You've got the banks. Uh, and of course, that's where Tom Smith's role comes in. And you've got these different you've got the police, you've got the street gangs and you've got these people who are sort of trying to manage this situation as it sort of goes on and as it escalates. And you almost wind up in a situation where there's a very short period of time that's that's covered in volume two, where New York has almost sort of hit this new normal before everything just sort of suddenly comes crashing down, which you saw at the end of volume one of the last concert. And you know, we, we go back just a little bit in the in the Valley of Shadows story to, you know, just just to be able to tell that and to, to let everybody see. And, you know, and especially with the new readers who are being introduced to the series. While, you know, while the while the main Smith family is, you know, at, while they're out on the water and you're seeing the beginnings of what becomes Wolf Squadron back on the land, you're you know, we're jumping back a few weeks and we're looking at. Okay, how is you know you know how how is Tom sort of trying to keep this whole thing together, and you know and execute these you know sort of multi layered, uh, you know very intricate contingency plans to uh, 
you know, to, to take care of his responsibilities to the bank and to get all his people out and to just sort of try to preserve that little bit of civilization to try to re to try to restart the world once everything falls apart. While Mike Barron has tackled this with his own comics in the past, most notably, as he pointed out, with his wonderful adaptations of Timothy Zahn's Thrawn trilogy and Mike Stackpole's Rogue Squadron, what were some of the challenges that came with adapting a book series to graphic novel form? Coordinating the two novels, because you, when you write a novel, you're not thinking uh, simultaneously of a diagonal novel that's taking place at the same time. Uh, but that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to take these two adventures that take place simultaneously, but are covered in two different novels and integrate them. So there's a lot of back and forth and back and forth. Uh, and and uh, I learned a lot this way and, and uh, going forward, there's some things I know I have to do is when I get those novels, I mark them up with colored pens. Uh, I mark the introduction of the characters, uh, who they are, what they're doing, so that I can flip through the novel while I'm working and go back and forth, because I have to go back and forth because there are so many characters involved. It's hard to keep them straight. Once you write them, you get them fixed in your head. They're a lot straighter there. But that was the challenge is integrating two novels into one. It, it really it really is an art. That's something that Richard and I have learned over the process. And we've been very, very fortunate and very blessed to have absolute masters of the craft to do this with. Uh, Chuck Dixon and his team kicked it off wonderfully. Uh, you'll see the results of that in volume one. And anybody who hasn't picked one up should go pick one up. Uh, they'll be out on uh, <clears throat> they'll be out on Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, should be around the beginning of June. The, the digital versions are both available on Amazon and on the Bain eBook store right now. Uh, if, like I say, if, 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 you're, if you're new to the series or you just haven't seen the graphic adaptation yet, uh, in, in whichever format you prefer, go check them out. And, you know, going on with that, um, yeah, you know, Chuck was awesome to work with. Mike was awesome to work with. You know, definitely different styles in, in, in how both gentlemen kind of approach the craft, but they're both masters in very different ways. It's probably, it's almost probably like watching, you know, watching Rembrandt and Picasso kind of work their magic in different ways, if you will. If you don't mind me asking, who is the Rembrandt and who is the Picasso in this case? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know enough about art to tell you that. Just, I, I just know these guys are both really <clears throat> awesome at what they do. Yes, uh. they are. Well, I guess while we're on the topic of Black Tide, I guess. You guys have all read the series. May I ask some of your favorite moments within the series? Maybe any that you're really looking forward to get down to the page for the graphic novels? Let's see. Well, Sophie, she's the, uh, she's 15 in the novels, right? Right, yeah. And and, and just, just, as a, just as, a, as a note to the readers, we, we did make the girls a tad bit older for the adaptation purposes. Faith is roughly between 16 and 17 and Sophia's roughly between 18 and 19. Well, uh, it was faith. Yeah. It was all these moments with faith killing zombies and being so enthusiastic about it. It's uh, such a radical departure of what we expect from a teenager today. She's out there. She's happy to chop zombies down the side with axes, uh, with whatever she's got. She loves to carry guns. She loves to blow them away. 
uh, it's a refreshing take on young people. For me, I would say I've I've really gravitated towards Mike Massa's uh, uh, Tom Smith duology. <clears throat> the uh, of course the you know the the main the main series is wonderful for all the reasons we know, and <clears throat> John really just he he just knocked it out of the park, sort of creating this world and and creating this kind of fresh take on the genre, and uh, you know having you know having this sort of hopeful story in a really dark and rough world. And I do like the extra shading that the duology offers in terms of, of, of how of, of getting the experience of uh, of seeing what you know what what the what the country actually looks like after things fall apart. And yeah, it, it's it, it's rough, it's brutal, it's it's all it's all the things that we see in any zombie genre. But the difference is just like what John did in the main series, you you, you see the best of humanity of the kind of people that would, you know, that would survive this whole thing. And you see how, you know, you, you really get that other, I guess that other sort of um, take on how the world can come back together on, on the water. It's almost a little bit easier because yes. that, that, that offers almost kind of a clean slate. It does. Faith and Sophia and Steve and Stacy to work off of. And, you know, Tom and his crew, you know, they've got the ruins of the old world and they've got, you know some some of the negative aspects of that to deal with and just watching how they deal with it and they still keep that sort of um, you know that that optimistic and you know and hopeful sense of you know of of how to rebuild things in a place where it's a little more difficult to do that just because you've got the you know you, you you've got the ruins of the old world to contend with and you've got some you know pretty nasty people that are that are kind of left at the margins so in, in some ways, it, it you know it can be a little more difficult on their side of things, and I just really like the theme of the you know the perseverance and the struggling through the sort of the whims of Murphy's law and just enduring at all costs. And yeah, that that part of it kind of struck me pretty pretty deeply. Yeah, when you're at sea, uh, it it highlights the contrast between civilization and uh, anarchy much more highly than when you're on land. And there's a lot of that in the book. And there is. And, and, and getting to work with Mike Barron and Chuck Dixon um, has been just a tremendous amount of fun. And of course, getting to work with John Ringo and getting to play in this universe he's put together uh, is a big honor. For me, like I said, when you were asking me when I first started out what I thought about this, when I got to the point where Mike said, well, just continue reading, and I did, when I sort of started to understand what Ringo had done, I, I actually stopped and just picked up the phone and had an at-length conversation with him. And he sort of gave me a, it was a little bit more than just a thumbnail. I mean, we had a good hour, hour and a half conversation on the phone. And the idea of the two girls and how they were going to interact with each other and what Faith was going to do and what Sophia was going to do, in addition to what their father Steve was going to be doing, as Mike Lerman has been pointing out, it's like, so when things fall apart, how do you exactly put them back together again? And it is sort of a Humpty Dumpty kind of story because you don't know what you're going to get and you're having to do everything on the fly, which was 
the part that I thought was really interesting about it because most stories when they're put together, it's it's a very uh, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And John didn't exactly write the universe that way. Um, sure, the zombies are there and they're the background, if you will, to everything. I always call them the wallpaper. Um, and they are there, but they're only there sort of as a, a distraction from what's really going on with the family. And of course, with Tom Smith, as Mike Lerman's been pointing out, you have his character having to deal with being on land the whole time. And he never does really except going down the coast a little bit, get to go out to sea very much at all. And so he is stuck with what's going on. And it's going to be fun to deal with that as we move forward in volume two and volume three and, and subsequent volumes. Yeah, I think it I think it really creates a, a very interesting dichotomy when you when you've got both stories and you can tell them the way that we're telling them there because you've um you know vol the the parts of the story that occur with the Smith family out on the water it it's a, it's a, it's 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 it feels fresher and cleaner it's uh you know it's it's a, it's a lot of kind of re, it's kind of rebirth you know rebirth of civilization and the the sort of gathering of what's left of humanity there in the new beginning and on you know on tom's side of the fence it's a whole lot more about sort of struggling through what's you know what's what's just kind of burnt down and broken to find the you know the last you know the last bits of of civilization to preserve so that you know so that steve and faith and sophia and the rest of the family on the water can do what they do and so that they have something to come back to on the land when it comes time for Wolf Squadron to to do what it does. From the art side of things, with volume one and volume two, is there a particular page that stands out to you guys so far? There, there is... Speaking as a comic creator, I got to say that that uh, uh, you don't want the visuals to overpower the story or the story to overpower the visuals. Uh, the whole thing is 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 one take. It used to be I would buy a comic because there was a great drawing of a werewolf. But the drawing of the werewolf took up the whole page. And you're looking at the werewolf. And while you're looking at the werewolf, the story stops dead. You just want to stay there looking at the werewolf. You don't turn the page to find out what happens next. This uh, book is all of a piece. Each frame advances the story. It serves a purpose. There are no wasted frames. Uh, so I can't really say that some pictures are, are, are I like more than others. You know, the kids are gonna go for blowing away zombies with all the gore. And believe me, there's a lot of action in this book, but if the dialogue is good and the moment is good, that's just as important. Yeah, it really, it really does sort of, just like Mike said, it, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really a full spectrum thing and, it, and it's, a full, it's a whole big picture. And it's, it's something that, that Chuck and Brett and Durla Santa Cruz, they, you know, they pulled off wonderfully in volume one, and it's it's something that it's something that we're seeing Mike Barron and Elias Martins, our new artist, uh, pulling off exactly the same way in volume two with the with, with the early returns and the early pages we've got. As for a favorite for me, I, I can think of a couple right off the top of my head. One, which is which is almost kind of the no brainer, is watching Faith, ha you know, watching Faith disarm 
at the metal detector and, and you know at the bank building when they first get to New York and of course you know getting the hand receipt for the bucket of weapons I mean you you don't really get any more black tide rising than that I mean that's that that's that's really a quintessential moment in, in the whole series and an, another one that's just that's just fun and it's just kind of a neat Easter egg is uh is the one that we were able to do with our friend Nick Ricada the uh the law pope of YouTube and one of our backers who uh who chose to to get killed as a zombie and we just we we went ahead and made him faith's first zombie kill and he's got a really uh he's got a really neat scene in there with with another friend of ours and it's you know if it, it fits in very well and fits in seamlessly with everything else if you don't know these people you don't know the story but it just makes me laugh a little extra knowing you know who inspired the zombie and who inspired the other character in that particular sequence the one for me is there's a point towards the end of the story uh, of volume one where they're picking up people in Manhattan and there's this one woman who is older, cranky, the whole nine yards, very typical Manhattanite and she's giving her husband a hard time about this, that and everything else and she's very slow getting into the MRAP and Faith just looks at her like, lady, get into this vehicle or, and, you know, she said, I'll, I'll, I'll turn you into vaccine. And Darylis did this great job of drawing, uh, as he saw it, Faith's eyes looking at this woman when Faith has the line of, lady, look at my eyes. And it's like, you know, either get in this vehicle or I'm going to shoot you. And I just thought it's just perfect Faith. Well, to step away from Black Tide, just to the side briefly, their zombies really seem to be having their moment in comic books and graphic novels. There's The Walking Dead, Deceased, Marvel Zombies, I Zombie. Is there something about the undead that just attracts them to graphic novels? Well, I think there's something about the undead that that's part of our collective consciousness of great monsters, which is why Frankenstein, vampires, werewolves, and mummies will always be with us. Recall the movie World War Z starring Brad Pitt, which is probably the apotheosis of zombie movies up until this point. Uh, but this is what people love, especially when you're young and you first learn about the concept and you think, oh, that is so cool because you love to be scared in fiction. Richard or Mike, anything to add? Well, for me, I I think that um, you know the, the 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 visuals and the creep factor and you know so, you know some of the things that attract people to horror movies. I think that you know I, I think that's a lot of it. And one of the things that I'm that I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity to do is to uh, to to really sort of to, to to be able to adapt this this really sort of interesting and kind of you know, just much more thoughtful direction that John took in, in writing a zombie story. Of course, you know, there's the, there's some of the famous stories that the, that, that a lot of the audience will be familiar with. Some may not be about how these books came about and how John was watching something like I am legend, or maybe it was an episode of the walking dead and just being really disgusted about something relating to the story and saying, yeah, I could do a lot better job than this. And, and just sort of 
so sort of grouching about that for a few weeks before Kelly and Miriam finally went to him and said, either write this book or shut up about it because we're tired of hearing about it. And thankfully he went and wrote it because we've got this awesome, we've got this awesome universe to work in. And I think it's, you know, it, it, it's really cool to be able to, to, to add, to, to add a, a whole nother dimension and a whole, a whole nother element onto the things that people already like while still preserving what people like about it. And, and to Mike Barron's point, you know, what is it about people and enjoying being scared? Um, having grown up in New York City, I was used to going to Coney Island. So you'd get on these rickety old wooden roller coasters and they would just scare the daylights out of you. Or if that wasn't enough, you could get on the parachute jump and, you know, get drug up in the air about 90, 100 feet, and then, you know, they would just cut you loose. There's something about people enjoying that. And I think that's one of the things for the two mics on this uh, call and myself that we get to enjoy, which is to bring this universe to light in a different way, which was how when Mike Lerman and I get a chance to meet with Tony periodically, we talk about doing this because we're hoping, you know, to be able to expose this to a new audience so that everybody who knows what it's all about, you know, hopefully they will enjoy it as much as everybody else, but that these new readers will go, oh, this is really neat. Now I want to see volume two, three, and four and, and, and move on from there. The, the other interesting thing I think that deserves a mention is, and, and, th and this actually came about from a, from another conversation Richard and I had with someone else a while back is, you know, the, the idea is, you know, since, since we live in a, you know, in, in a pretty comfortable sheltered society, when you think about the entirety of history and kind of the world as it is, there's also the element of, Hey, you know, do I, you know, do I have what it takes to survive if things just really went to pot and, you know the zombie genre in a lot of ways is kind of is is kind of an outlet for that since we're thankfully not having to um, you know go, go and you know hole up in abandoned shopping malls or or uh, go, you know go go find some place to you know to hide from a horde of feral cannibals but it's it you know it, i think it's just human nature there's 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 always that question it's like hey you know could could i could my friends, family, or whoever, you know, do, do, would we have what it takes to, to, to make it through some kind of crazy apocalyptic event? And it's, uh, you know, this, the zombie genre, I think has always kind of been a, a way for people to, to sort of have fun while sort of processing those thoughts and kind of, you know, and kind of thinking about it in terms of the, of their own lives and, you know, and their own personal stories. Richard kind of touched on our next point that talking about new audiences. Graphic novels and comic books really seem to be having a moment of transition. DC and Marvel have dominated the comic book space along with publishers like Dark Horse for decades. And now we're seeing a combination of Scholastic running away with an entire chunk of the market, Japanese publishers dominating the space, and of course, independent comic creators such as yourself doing wild and creative things that DC and Marvel wouldn't have touched a decade ago, two decades ago. 
What is it about they, that mode? They still won't touch them. <laughs> and we're poorer for it, but you guys are all the richer. Oh, yeah, so. we are. Well, you know, Marvel and DC don't know whether to shit or go blind. The first rule of entertainment is you have to entertain your customers. And they forgot that. And that's why their books are circling the drain. I don't know if you've opened a Marvel or a DC book recently, uh, but they're woke. And people don't like woke. They want to be entertained. And, and to, your, to, to your point, every time I walk into a Barnes & Noble, I am always pleasantly surprised how much larger the graphic novel section right. is getting. When I yeah. first walked into the one, uh, when I was living in Atlanta, I don't know, I think they had about three good size bookshelves. And then, don't get me wrong, I mean, these were aisles worth of graphic novels. The last time I walked into a Barnes and Noble, it had doubled in size. And so, uh, uh, Sean, as you're pointing out, uh, uh, things like, uh, you know, anime and manga, they have just gotten that much bigger also. And it's just another area that you can wind up playing in. Yeah, it, it's, it's a really great opportunity for us because, as, as Mike Barron touched on a minute ago, unfortunately, you have these large corporate media entities that have forgotten their core mission. They've they've forgotten the mission that they have to to entertain people. And, and, they, and they've forgotten that if you that if you entertain people, the finances and the rest of the stuff will, will, you know, will, will come along after the fact. And they've, you know, they, they've, they've got different agendas they want to push and they've got, they've got all these other things they want to focus on, except entertaining the audience and respecting the audience's intelligence and, you know, giving them something they want and giving them, you know, giving them something that, that makes just a little bit of, bit of their day better for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour a day. And that's, you know that that that's where we have this great opportunity to step in and provide a little bit of that because that's that, you know, that's one of the biggest things for all of us is you know we we get to we get to work in this awesome world we get to be creative in that sense you know we've 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 got a great blueprint in what uh, in what John Ringo and Mike Massa and uh, you know every author that's contributed to the Black Tide universe has has contributed there and we you know that's for me at least that's um, if if I can, if I can make somebody's day just a little bit better with, you know, with a little bit of escapism, then um, I'm, I'm very happy with that. And and I guess to connect to that indie moment to what you guys are doing with Black Tide Rising, it used to be far more common to see comic book and graphic novel adaptations of science fiction and fantasy works. I mean, I know one of my first encounters with comic books as a kid was picking up old, well-thumbed issues of Conan the Barbarian or the Elric of Meldibane comics from back in the day. And you just don't see a lot of that from the mainstream publishers of comic books anymore. Is that an exciting opportunity for this independent graphic novel movement we see? To offer and fill that space and adapt science fiction and fantasy novels that hasn't been done by comic books in America, in some cases for decades. I don't know about adapting other people's works, but the uh, uh, the private comic book publishing that are outside the normal channels uh, that are generated by the creators themselves is exploding. 
Yeah. We, for, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I don't want to babble on, but we have a group called Comicsgate who are mostly comics veterans are very well known. They include Graham Nolan, who created the character Bane with Chuck Dixon. Chuck is a member and we are self-publishing our own books and crowdfunding them. And we're doing better than we ever have with the regular industry because people are starved for entertainment. They're going to go where the good story is. Right. On, on our end is Hound Dog Media. It, uh, you know, we, we welcome the opportunity to introduce, you know, different types of readers to some of these other stories. I mean, it, it works on both ends. We get to introduce comic and graphic novel readers to the works of John Ringo and to you know, other science fiction and fantasy authors, hopefully down the road. And on the other side, you know, we, we get we get to do it going the other direction as well. We get to introduce these readers who may not you know, who may not have ever considered picking up a comic or a graphic novel to, you know, to giving them something that, that they love and that they're familiar with and sort of acclimating them to to picking up some other works by folks like Mike Barron, by Chuck and Graham. And it's I, I think it's just a win win across the board. And it works. It works wonderfully going both ways on that. Now, of course, on the Bane side of things, I have to be the guy to ask, since you said, hopefully <laughs> other works. Wave a magic wand. What Bane series or Bane book would you like to see a graphic novel of in the future, even if not adapted by you? Monster Hunter International. That'd be a great one. <clears throat> I, I don't. I don't really want to name anything right now because you know we've got you know we've got some we've got some possibilities that we've been kicking around, and we'll hopefully be able to talk about some of that stuff in, in the very near future. But, uh, and 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 I I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to artificially inflate any, any any hopes about any one particular thing. But there's there's so much out there, and there's especially just in the just kind of in the Bane universe. There's 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 so much that would be so cool to do, and we're we're really looking forward to the opportunity to 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 add some more on there. Yeah, it's not that everything that Bane has published would be suitable as a graphic novel. Some of it just doesn't translate because these, the stories, the way they were written, which are great stories and I enjoy reading them, um, but they're, they're, they just, they're not as visual as some of the others such as Black Tide Rising is or uh, Monster Hunter International would be. Um, and translating any of these into a graphic novel is, is really a lot of fun. Um, for me, it's like going back to doing my independent film work. I, you know, you, you get to be very directorial and you know, being a producer when you're working with the writer who is actually the, the director, if you will, because they're staging everything the way they need it to be and the way they see it being. Um, so, you know, it's it's very much like filmmaking, and that's really what we're trying to do is to shortcut that process to really get some of this in other people's hands um, and, and be able to really get it visualized in some sort of episodic TV or film work. Well, to kind of, again, connect that comics movement and are Bane readers who might be new to comic books or graphic novels, and maybe even some of our indie comic creators and readers 
who might be new to Bane books. For all the comics fans, if they could pick up any Bane book on the shelf, except Black Tide Rising, because obviously if they're picking up your graphic novel, they should be picking up those books, <laughs> what would you want them reading? And for all of our longtime Bane readers who might be looking to add a few comics or graphic novels to their shelves, what recommendations would you have for them? Well, I, I guess I'll start off and say um, I... I, I, I love Larry Korea's epic fantasy, the Forgotten Warrior series, uh, some of the Black Sword. And, uh, you know, the in fact, I've still got to read the most recent entry in that. I've got to just make some time to do that. Uh, I, I, lo I love the Grimnar Chronicles. And um, yeah, I, 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 if I'd, I'd say I'd say for comic folks and I, I, th I think Mike is Mike Barron's going to have some really good thoughts here since he's as sort of well versed in both worlds as he is. Um, I, th I think I, I think some of that some of the, especially some of the Larry stuff really um, it, it's 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 really got that it's really got that uh, the pacing and the sort of visual writing style that comic folks I think would really pick up on very quickly and it's they're just I mean they're fun reads for all ages and I, if it, if it were me telling somebody right off the top of my head right here at this moment that's probably where I would start. And Mike, what do, you, what do you think is, is on the on the like for the readers say, who haven't really dipped their toe very much into comics and graphic novels? What what do you think there? About uh, adapting Bane or just comics and graphic? Well, novels just 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 for just readers who um, readers who haven't really done much and or haven't really read much in the comic and graphic novel world, where they might want to start. Well, I recommend my own creation, Nexus, which we uh, started in 1981. It's won every industry award. A lot of people think it's the greatest superhero character of all time. I co-created it with my art, my friend Steve Rude. Uh, and if you're familiar with him, you know that his art is phenomenal, just phenomenal. Uh, and we're continuing to do that. Richard, anything to add? Yeah. And now I think, as as Mike Lerman was saying, you know, any of the the, the Bane writers, you know, especially Larry Carrillo or Chuck Dixon, um, their works are so visual that, you know, putting them into something like this genre, it's just a natural fit. You know, I always joke with with Tony when we're talking that. You know, the difference winds up being for a reader, their theater is the six inches between their ears. And that's very understandable. And for us, the challenge is to make sure when we produce something, it doesn't, I'll say it this way, it doesn't offend their visualization that they had in their mind. And they look at it and they go, well, you know, this is even better than the way I thought about it. And that's really what what's going on. So any of those authors that Bain works with um, would be really, really suitable for this genre. Well, we're coming up on the tail end of our time for the podcast. For all of our listeners, where can they find your works? And what would you like to tell them if they're still on the fence about picking up graphic the uh, Black Tide Rising graphic novel, Volume 1. 
Well, I'll start off, you know, shortly as, as we started off the conversation and Mike Lerman pointed out, uh, the volume one will be in Barnes and Noble, uh, certainly by the 1st of June. I think we're looking at about the, probably like Amazon has the sixth listed. So we're, we're looking somewhere in that first week for sure. Right. And the idea would be go into a Barnes and Noble and take a look at it. Uh, I know when uh, uh, Mike Lerman said, well, what do you think about a graphic novel? That's what I did. I went to Barnes and Noble. I found a graphic novel. And uh, in this one, in this case, it happened to be Scott Pilgrim because it's a movie I was familiar with. And I just thumbed my way through it. So I would suggest in that first part of June, go into your local Barnes and Noble and find one there. And if it's something you like, uh, take it up to the counter and take it home with you. Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't think you can beat that experience. Uh, you know, being able to walk into a bookstore like that, find something you like and and take it home. There's there's nothing like it. If you're, if you're not inclined that way, uh, or if, you know, if you just can't make it for some reason, Amazon, uh, like I say, uh, there sh should have those on June 6th. Uh, to to start shipping out, we were at, we were actually going to release those simultaneously. Uh, the <laughs> the the good problem to have that got in the way just a little bit is we wound up getting a lot more orders than we anticipated on the print side, and we had to adjust that print run just a little bit to uh, to accommodate an, an additional crop of orders. Uh, so that uh, there's always that, and and if you're more of a digital person, if you like reading on a Kindle or if you like reading on an iPad or something like that. You can actually get those right now, both at the Bain Books ebook store at bain.com. And you can also go to Amazon. You can get that right now as well. Mike Barron? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Bloody Red Baron. I'm on Facebook, the comics and novels of Mike Barron. Uh, people who are not familiar with comics, it's hard to get them hooked unless they're young. Uh, it's a lot easier, but you know, I have a lot of friends who say, well, I don't know how to read a comic. And I tell them to go to Barnes and Noble and go to the graphic novel section. Uh, you're gonna find such a wide variety there. Uh, I think that the independent stuff, the non-superhero stuff greatly outnumbers uh, the Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and Image anthologies that they're putting up. You see a lot of personal tales uh, by artists who are not uh, superhero artists, very personal tales like Persepolis, which is about what's happening in uh, the Middle East, uh, Hidden Ink, which is a, a story about uh, a man's a mother's longtime affair with a, a famous artist and how it forged his life. I grew up on guys like R. Crom and Gilbert Shelton, uh, the great underground cartoonists. And there's a whole new uh, generation of these people and their books are appearing in, in Barnes and Noble. Many of them are autobiographical. I'm sure you're all familiar with Art Spiegelman and his book Moss mm -hmm. about the Holocaust. Uh, and there are now a hundred creators that are following the path he laid down, dealing with historical subjects, uh, with uh, art that may not appeal to the standard superhero fan, but will appeal to anybody with an eye for craft. 
one that I will mention, you can see it just a little bit of Mike's background there. Um, if, if you're not a superhero type person and you just want something that's, that's just really well written and, and just hilarious, uh, pick up Florida Man. I Mike actually sent me that a little bit before before it was properly published. And man, I just I, I love that one. And I, oh, I, I look you. forward to the future chapters of that. Uh, can can folks get that one right now, Mike? Uh, FloridaManComics.com. And we're about to launch the second graphic novel. It's even funnier than the first. Yeah, that that's a that's definitely a personal recommend for me. And that's actually when 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 Mike and I first started talking about working on something together, that was one of the first things Mike sent me, and I was sold right then. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today on the Bain Free Radio Hour. It was a pleasure to have you. For all of our listeners and viewers at home, this has been the ba Sean C.W. Korsgaard for the Bain Free Radio Hour. You can find Black Tide Rising Volume 1 on Bain.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else fine books are sold. Signing off, keep reading. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobra's. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. The ability you claim is non-existent, the box said. You are not in control of that ship. You're wrong, Commander. My companion and I are in full control here. You have no companion. The soldier hiding in the dining area ventilation system has been returned to his quarters. So the other Marine had been found. I'm not speaking of him. Where is your companion? Nearby and in control. If you want to know any more, you'll have to come here and negotiate the trade I've suggested. There was another long pause. Very well, I will come. Good. Johnny blew a drop of sweat from the tip of his nose. Perhaps it was just getting hot. You will reveal your companion to us before the ship commander arrives, one of the guards said. It didn't sound like a request. Johnny took a careful breath, preparing himself. Certainly. She's right here. He gestured to his left, the arm movement masking the slight bending of his knees, and he ricocheted off the ceiling to slam to the deck behind the four guards, fingertip lasers blazing. The communications box went first, fried instantly by a blast from his arc-thrower. Two of the guards' guns hit the deck midway through that first salvo. The other two guards made it nearly all the way around before their lasers also erupted with clouds of vaporized metal and plastic and went spinning from burned hands. A sideways jump and a half-turn and Johnny had the last three troughs in sight. "'Don't move!' he snapped." With the translator linked down, his words were unintelligible, but none of the aliens seemed to mistake his meaning. All remained frozen where they stood or sat, arm membranes stretched wide, 
as Johnny disarmed the last three and then tore the communicator pins from the uniforms of all seven. Herding them down the staircase, he got them into a nearby water-pumping room, spot-welding the latch to make sure they stayed put, and hurried aft toward the main hatch. The trough commander wasn't likely to come alone, and Johnny needed at least a little advance notice as to what size force he'd have to handle. The possibility that the other would simply veer off, trading his occupation force for two humans, wasn't one Johnny wanted to consider. He heard them coming down the boarding tunnel long before they actually appeared. Ten to fifteen of them, he estimated, from the sound. Hidden in an emergency battery closet a dozen meters down the hall, he watched through a cracked door as they approached. The commander was easy to spot, keeping to the geometric center of his guard array. An older troughed by the purple blotches on his throat bladder, his uniform fairly dripping with the colored piping of rank. Six guards ahead of him, six behind him, their lasers fanned to cover both directions. The procession moved down the corridor toward Johnny's hiding place and the bridge. The vanguard passed him, and Johnny slammed open the door and leaped. The door caught the nearest trough full in the back, jolting him forward and clearing just enough room for Johnny's rush to get him through the phalanx unhindered. With one outstretched arm, he caught the commander around his torso, the action spinning them both around as Johnny's initial momentum drove them toward the far wall. Slipping between the two guards on that side, they slammed against the plating, Johnny's back screaming with agony as it took the brunt of the impact. And then, for a long moment, the corridor was a silent, frozen tableau. All right, Johnny said as his breath returned. I know you don't apply the idea of hostage to yourselves, Commander, so we'll just think of this as a matter of your personal safety. All of you, lay your weapons down on the deck. I don't especially want to hurt your commander, but I will if I have to. Still no one moved, the twelve laser muzzles forming shining counterpoint to the arched arm membranes spread out behind each of them. I told you to drop your guns, Johnny repeated more harshly. Don't forget that you can't hit me without killing your commander. The trough leaning against him stirred slightly in his grip. They have no concern for my life, the translator voice said. I am not the ship commander, merely a services engineer in his uniform. A crude trick, but one which we learn from humans. Johnny's mouth went dry. His eyes swept the circle of troughs, the steadiness of their weapons an unspoken confirmation of the other's words. You're lying, he said, not believing it, but driven to say something. If you're not the commander, then why haven't they opened fire? He knew the answer to that. They wanted him alive. History, personal history at least, had repeated itself, and even more than on Adirondack, he knew the knowledge he held this time was too valuable to allow the enemy to have. Chris, a detached fragment of his mind, breathed in anguish toward the distant stars, and he prepared for his last battle. They will not shoot, the troughed in his grip said. You are a Kubra soldier from the Aventine world and if killed you would merely fight on until all aboard were dead. Johnny frowned. How's that? You need not deny the truth. We have all heard the report. What report? Johnny opened his mouth to ask the question aloud, and suddenly he understood. MacDonald. Somehow they'd heard about MacDonald. He looked at the circle of troughs again, seeing their rigidly stretched arm membranes with new eyes. 
determination, he'd thought earlier, or perhaps rage. But now he recognized the emotion for what it was. Simple, naked fear. Darl was right, that same detached fragment of his mind realized. They are afraid of us. I don't wish to kill anyone, he said quietly. I want only to free my companions and to continue on my way. To what end? The same flat voice came from the direction of the boarding tunnel. Johnny turned his head to see another middle-aged troft walking slowly toward them. His uniform was identical to the one wrapped in Johnny's arms. That of protecting my world, Commander, Johnny told him. By diplomatic means if possible, military ones if necessary. The other said something in catter-talk, and slowly the circle of laser muzzles dipped to point at the floor. His eyes on the troughed commander, Johnny released his captive and stepped out from behind him. A trick to put the cobra off guard, perhaps. But the politician within Johnny recognized the need to respond to the gesture with a good faith one of his own. Have we any grounds for negotiation? he asked. Perhaps, the commander said. You spared the lives of the troughts in your control center when you could as easily have killed them. Why? Johnny frowned realizing for the first time that he had no idea why he'd handled things that way. Too long in politics, where one never killed one's opponent. No, the real reason was considerably less colorful. There wasn't any need to kill them, he said with a shrug. I suppose it never really occurred to me. Kubra soldiers were created to kill. We were created to defend. There's a difference. The other seemed to ponder that. Perhaps there are grounds for compromise, he said at last, or at least for discussion. Will you and your companion come to my bridge? Johnny nodded. Yes, but the companion I mentioned won't actually be there. She's an insubstantial entity we humans call Lady Luck. The commander was silent a moment. I believe I understand. If so, I would still invite her to accompany us. Turning, he disappeared into the boarding tunnel. Hesitating only a moment, Johnny followed. The escort, weapons still lowered, fell into step around him. He was back on the Mansana side of the tunnel four hours later, when Ray and Tarvin were brought aboard. Good evening, gentlemen, Johnny nodded as their troughed escort silently disappeared back down the tunnel. Captain, if you'll seal that hatch, we're almost ready to be on our way. What the hell happened? Ray asked, his bewildered tone making the words more plaintive than demanding. No questioning, no demands, no talk, period, and suddenly they're letting us go? Oh, there was talking, all right, Johnny said. Lots of it. That hatch secure? Good. Captain, I believe the drive repairs are finished, but you'll need to confirm that from the bridge, and make sure we're all ready before you pull away. The other troughed ship isn't in on this, and they might try and stop us. Tarvin's eyebrows arched, but all he said was, Got it, before heading forward at a fast trot. What's going on? Ray demanded as Johnny started to follow. What do you mean there was lots of talking? The ship commander and I had a discussion, and I convinced him it was in his best interests to let us go. In other words, you made a deal, Ray growled. What was it? Something I'll discuss only with the Central Committee and only when we reach Asgard, Johnny told him flatly. Ray frowned at him, irritation and growing suspicion etching his face. You're not authorized to negotiate for the entire dominion of man. That's okay. 
The ship commander wasn't authorized to negotiate for the troughed assemblage either. A gentle thump rippled through the deck, and Johnny relaxed muscles he hadn't realized he'd had tensed. But what authority he did have seems to have been adequate to get us away. Moreau, now if you'll excuse me, it's been a long night and I'm very tired. Good night, Mr. Ray. You can figure out on your own how you'll write this incident up. I'm sure you'll come out the hero in the final version. Which was a rather cheap shot, Johnny admitted to himself as he headed aft toward his cabin. But at the moment, his body was aching more than Ray would ever know, and he had no patience left for mid-bureaucratic mentality. Or, for that matter, for illegal business practices and deliberate evasions. Which was why he planned to take a few days to recuperate before confronting Drew and Harmon with the half-truth the troughed ship commander had popped. Allies they had been. Allies they might yet be. And he would like, if possible, to also keep them as friends. That was the final installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Mike Lerman, Mike Barron, and Richard Rosenthal. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 